Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so while we go through recent developments in the public safety labor world. And I wanted to start with something that is not a court decision. I've got a bunch of them to talk about, as you'll hear. But uh, I'm starting to see articles again about we need to get rid of binding disciplinary arbitration for public safety employees. And I'm wondering whether or not uh, this is part of a nationwide push to do so. Uh, we've seen this from time to time. We particularly saw, saw it in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Uh, but we've seen it uh, you know, many times over the years. The same actors seem to be involved uh, on all occasions. Mostly the push comes from far right-wing think tanks. Uh, at times when police reform is on everybody's lips, uh, then you will see folks on the left side of the political spectrum join in and say we ought to get rid of binding arbitration. Uh, and then after a few articles are written in scholarly or uh, the, in the case of the one that I'm just about to describe to you, not so scholarly uh, journals, uh, it seems to go away for a while. Uh, but uh, because I'm starting to see these things right now, uh, I thought I'd go over with you uh, some of the basic precepts of this article uh, and uh, talk about uh, whether or not the precepts are factually based. Uh, this is an article called how to improve policing through collective bargaining reforms. Uh, and it is based on a review by a fellow named Steve Delay or Delhi, D-E-L-I-E, -E, uh, who is writing for one of these right-wing think tanks. This is the Mackinac Center for Public Policy in Michigan, long opposed to uh, binding arbitration of pretty much anything in the public sector and opposed to collective bargaining for that matter. Um, and what Delhi does is on the basis of what seems almost a laughably inadequate record, he's reviewed 25 labor contracts, he ends up concluding that we should not have binding arbitration of discipline in any uh, public safety, and in particular in any police contracts. Uh, he concedes that binding arbitration has met uh, some of its goals. Uh, he concedes that arbitration is faster uh, than court litigation. In fact, it's twice as fast. Uh, he concedes that arbitration is less expensive uh, than litigation. So why is he opposed to binding arbitration? And the answer is the results. And what does he cite? He cites results that have been around for a long time, really as long as there's been binding arbitration in the private or public sector, and that is that arbitrators in cases of discipline, terminations in particular, overturn an employer's decision roughly half the time. 
And as far as, uh, I'll call him Delhi, as far as Delhi is concerned, that is enough to impugn the integrity of the entire arbitration process. Uh, the way Delhi puts it is uh, to say this, and, and I'm going to quote, uh, one way to review the reliability of arbitration decisions is to examine their statistical outcomes. Some studies that evaluated these decisions have found that employees win their discipline challenges 52% of the time, suggesting only a slight pro-employee bias. But the issue is highly jurisdictional. For example, in Minnesota, where Derek Chauvin worked as a police officer, union, unions got 46% of all terminations overturned by arbitrators. I don't really understand the math there, right? I mean, uh, I think he's citing Minnesota as a worst case example of arbitration, yet in Minnesota unions only won 56% of the time rather than the 52%, I mean, excuse me, 46% of the time rather than the 52% he cited earlier. But uh, that, uh, that's his math, that's his statistics. But there's something fundamentally wrong with that approach, right? of simply looking at the results and saying it's 50-50 or 55-45, even 90-10 in favor of one side or the other. Arbitrators don't decide all disciplinary cases. They only decide the disciplinary cases that the parties send to them. And which is the party in a collective bargaining relationship that has the ability to invoke binding arbitration of discipline? It's the union. Unions are selecting which cases do and which cases do not end up in binding arbitration. And uh, the unions that I've represented over my career do not take any or uh, all cases to binding arbitration. In fact, uh, the count, the best count that I could ever do is that the unions I represented uh, challenge less than 10% of disciplinary decisions. And in the others, they looked at the employee and looked at the employer and said, you know what? The employer got it right here and we're not going to appeal this decision. So if unions are picking and choosing which cases go to arbitration, what sort of factors are they using? Well, I've just told you the most important factor, can they win? Um, but there are others, of course, the cost of the arbitration proceeding can be taken into account, uh, the impact on other members of the bargaining unit of an ad adverse decision could be taken into account. There's a, a wide variety of factors unions take into account in deciding whether or not to take a case to arbitration. But one thing that unions typically do not do is they don't take losing cases to arbitration. Arbitration costs tens of thousands of dollars. Why would a union, as a rational economic consumer, take losers to arbitration. And uh, my experience has been they don't. I would expect 
uh, in our firm, and we just have a small firm in the Pacific Northwest, I would expect we would win 90% at least of cases that we are representing a union in binding arbitration of a disciplinary sanction. And that's because of the union's disciplinary process. So when uh, Delhi is saying, you know, wow, unions win half the cases, that must mean that arbitration is broken because they're winning too many cases. It shows he fundamentally does not understand how the binding arbitration process works. And this is an error. Uh, it's fundamental to his conclusion, of course. His entire conclusion is based on this. Uh, but this is an error that's picked up in study after study, some of which are published in law reviews. So I'm going to uh, post Delhi's article in the show notes. Read it and read it critically. Because if you haven't seen these arguments in your area yet, you will sooner or later. For this next case, which comes out of the Missouri Court of Appeals, um, I'm going to put on the hat of giving advice to employers. Uh, it's a hat I don't usually wear unless I'm teaching. Uh, but uh, this is a case that contains a object lesson that every public employer in this country should know and understand. And for some reason, the message hasn't quite come through. What's the object lesson? Don't conduct simultaneous criminal and disciplinary investigations, at least not investigations that involve in uh, interviewing the employee. Okay, uh, what happens in the case that gives rise to that object lesson? Uh, this is a case involving the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. Uh, it goes back to August of 2018. And internal affairs uh, in the department starts a investigation into whether or not an officer only identified in the court's uh, opinion as Officer S.K., uh, whether an officer had a sexual relationship with a 12-year-old girl. Uh, and the girl's parents complained uh, and indicated that the sexual encounter happened when Officer S.K. picked up the girl in his patrol car. The department, when it receives this complaint, starts two investigations, an internal affairs investigation and a criminal investigation. So we've got an employer, one that's large enough to know better than this, that is conducting simultaneous criminal and disciplinary investigations. Uh, the department seeks to interview uh, Officer Zachariah Foltz, uh, as a witness in the internal uh, investigation. In this case, is not about Officer S.K., it's about Officer Foltz and what he did and did not do. Foltz was in the patrol car with Officer S.K. and the child. So the department uh, calls Foltz in 
uh, to be a witness in the internal investigation. I'm going to try to keep these straight. This is the IA investigation. Foltz comes to IAD's interview with his lawyer. And before the interview even starts, the commanding officer of IA, a lieutenant, uh, informs Foltz's lawyer that Foltz wasn't the subject of the investigation, but was a potential witness in the internal and criminal investigations of Officer S.K. Foltz's counsel muses out loud uh, about whether or not the circuit attorney, uh, that's what they call prosecutors in St. Louis County, uh, whether or not the circuit attorney, who had the ultimate authority to decide whether to charge someone with a crime, what that attorney might do with any statements Foltz might make in the criminal investigation. And uh, that's good lawyering, right? Uh, that is a police officer's lawyer thinking, what's the worst case? What, what could happen here? And that's what you want uh, a police union lawyer to do. And the lawyer is saying, any idea of what's going on with the circuit attorney and what they might do? And the answer is no. And Foltz is the first witness IA has interviewed after talking with the mother and father. And so Foltz doesn't really have much of a clue as to what the allegations are about. The interview starts, and it starts with both uh, an internal investigator and a criminal investigator in the interview room. Uh, right now, uh, all the red flags ought to be going up. Why, are, why do you have an internal investigator and a criminal investigator in the same room? Okay, continuing. Uh, Foltz's attorney is present for this whole interview. It's recorded on video and audio. And the interview starts with the IA investigator confirming that Foltz had been given what's called an advice of rights form uh, by the police department. Uh, what the advice of rights form is, what we'd call it in most of the rest of the country, is garrity warnings, or sometimes reverse garrity warnings. Uh, and this is a warning that Foltz uh, is compelled to answer the questions. Uh, and if he does not answer the questions, does not testify to them, and doesn't do so truthfully, he will, quote, be subject to departmental charge charges, which could result in your dismissal from the police department, end quote. Uh, the warning given false also indicates that his statements and the fruits of his statements might be used against him in departmental charges, but would not be used in criminal proceedings. Okay, standard reverse garrity warnings, right? You got to talk. It's a condition of employment. You got to testify truthfully. If you don't, uh, you can be fired for insubordination. If you do, your statements and the fruits of your statements won't be used in a subsequent criminal proceeding against you. A standard reverse garrity warnings. Um, okay, so we're, we're only modestly off the rails now, right? We're off the rails because we've got the IA investigator and the criminal investigator in the room. 
Um, but we're headed back towards the main track here by the fact that the IA investigator is giving Foltz a reverse Garrity warning, which is exactly what he should be doing. So after Foltz and the IA investigator sign the form, we go wildly off the rails. The internal investigator then begins to read Foltz his rights under Miranda. Okay, what does Miranda mean? What, what is the talisman for whether or not an individual needs to be given Miranda warnings? And the answer is, are they in custody? And every police officer in this country knows that. Miranda's about custodial interrogation. So when the IA investigator, who has just given these reverse Garrity warnings and told Foltz, you're in an internal affairs investigation, when the IA investigator reads Miranda warnings, he's telling Foltz, you're in a criminal investigation. And that sort of confusion simply should not happen. The criminal investigator knows this because he interrupts the IA investigator and says, hey, no need to read Foltz's Miranda rights because Foltz is not going to make any statements in the criminal investigation. Um, but then the criminal investigator goes off the rails because the next thing he does is to ask Foltz whether he understood that refusing to make a statement in the criminal investigation could result in discipline. Foltz said, I understand, but I don't want to make a statement in the criminal investigation. And the criminal investigator then leaves the room. This is like all messed up at this point in time. Uh, you can just tell uh, that whatever is going to happen to Foltz is not going to be upheld by the court because there's so much confusion in such a short period of time in this interview room. Okay, so now we have the IA investigator, Foltz, and Foltz's lawyer uh, in the room, and the IA investigator questions Foltz about the allegations of inappropriate acts between Officer SK and the child. Foltz answers all the questions, and at the conclusion that the IA investigators questioning, the lieutenant of IA told the internal investigator to return to the interview room with the criminal investigator and order Foltz to make a statement to the criminal investigator. This is getting even worse, isn't it? All right. Both investigators follow the lieutenant's directions and relay the order. Foltz talks to his lawyer and again declines to make a statement. Well, you know where this is going, right? The department fires Foltz, citing in part his refusal to answer the questions that were given by or posed by the criminal investigator, uh, the refusal to talk to the criminal investigator, uh, and then Foltz appeals, and the case ends up with the Missouri Court of Appeals. Uh, and the court uh, finds the way the department treated the whole Garrity issue, the Fifth Amendment issue, uh, to be fatal to the department's case. Here's what the court says. 
It is undisputed that Foltz refused to speak to the criminal investigation in investigator, even though this refusal was not accompanied by any oral invocation of the Fifth Amendment, it was, as a matter of law, an invocation of the right to remain silent and not make potentially self-incriminating statements. The department even recognizes this, the court says, um, and recognized it uh, in the termination letter. Uh, and the court says, uh, look, this is exactly what you cannot do under Garrity. You cannot refuse to uh, immunize an employee who you are trying to force to give a statement. So what's the department's argument here? You know, the department says, look, uh, Foltz knew that he was protected by Garrity from both the internal investigator and the criminal investigator. Um, but the court says, no, he didn't know that. Uh, first of all, you didn't advise him of his rights prior to the interview with the criminal investigator. And the court said, while the advice of rights form given to Foltz at the start of the IA investigator did say that his statements to the IA investigator could not be used against him. Quote, Foltz was not given that same assurance as to any statement he made to the criminal investigators. The fact that there were two investigations proceeding on parallel tracks with a firewall between them, separating the flow of information from the internal to the criminal, indicates that statements made to one investigator were of a different character and would be used for different purposes than those made to the other investigator. So bottom line, the court says, Foltz was not required to assume that the second statement that he gave was, quote, an idle act of no legal effect and would be protected under Garrity, you needed to give false Garrity warnings before you compelled an answer in the criminal investigation. This is a lesson learned by employers uh, uh, actually several times a year across the country, uh, but it doesn't seem to have seeped through. If you are going to conduct parallel criminal and disciplinary investigations, you must have the sort of firewall that the court talks about where uh, no information from the internal affairs investigation flows over to the criminal investigation. And like the worst thing that you can do is try to uh, interview the same employee in both the criminal and the disciplinary investigation. When you try to investigate an employee for potential misconduct while you are investigating the employee for disciplinary misconduct and are compelling the employee to talk in an IA investigation, you are going to find out that both your discipline and your criminal investigations are going to end up being fruitless. I don't know why 
we still have to learn that lesson, but we do. This next case I offer to you really just as a reminder of a somewhat obscure concept in the law. This comes out of workers' compensation law. And this is the whole idea of a workers' comp bar. That's what it's normally called. So this goes back to the uh, early 1900s when we're first enacting workers' compensation statutes and systems uh, as a way of protecting employees. Uh, because at, at the time, employees who were injured on the job basically had virtually no rights whatsoever. And workers' compensation laws uh, quickly hit upon what you could think of as a grand compromise. Employees gave up something and employers gave up something. What is it that employers gave up? Uh, in a workers' compensation, compensation case, the negligence of the employee is irrelevant. It's not a defense for the employer that the employee acted negligently and injured herself or himself. That's simply off limits as a defense. Uh, so think of workers' compensation as almost what the law calls a strict liability uh, sort of structure, where with very, very few exceptions, if something happened on the job, if an injury happened on the job, it's going to be compensable. Uh, and the fact that the employee may have caused the incident resulting in the injury is going to be irrelevant. So that's what em employers gave up. What did employees give up? They gave up the right to sue their employer for the employer's negligence. This is what a workers' compensation bar is. Uh, and these workers' compensation bars are usually phrased uh, in the sense that the exclusive remedy provided by workers' compensation prohibits lawsuits against an employer for injuries they cause acting in the course and scope of their employment. These workers' compensation bars also prohibit employees from trying to do an end run around suing the employer, and they also prohibit lawsuits against co-employees for injuries they cause when to the employee bringing the lawsuit when the co-employees are acting within the scope of their employment. So no end runs where you can sue the uh, employee who was negligent um, rather than sue the employer. Now, these workers' compensation bars don't exist in every state. They exist in almost every state. Uh, but there are some states, uh, Washington is a, a good example, uh, where there is no workers' compensation bar that impacts firefighters or law enforcement officers. Uh, in Washington, uh, the statute is part of uh, what's called the LEF system, the Law Enforcement Officers and Firefighters uh, Retirement System, and it essentially does away with a workers' compensation bar uh, for participants in one of the LEF retirement plans. So uh, this is a state-by-state -state sort of thing, and you need to check your state to see if there is a workers' compensation bar. So how does this thing work? And here's 
the case I'm using here uh, is, a, I think, a very good example of how the workers, a workers' compensation bar works. Uh, this involves Matthew Van, uh, who was a firefighter with the San Francisco Fire Department. And on November 2nd of 2020, Van responds to an emergency. And while Van is at the scene of, of the emergency, a bus driver with the San Francisco Metropolitan Transit Authority drives a bus through the location of the active emergency. The bus drives over a fire hose. The fire hose becomes entangled in the bus's wheels and stretches until it broke off of the fire engine to which it was attached. When the fire hose broke away, it hit Van's legs. That swept Van off his feet, causing him to slam backwards onto the ground. His helmet flew off and the back of his head struck the street surface. Uh, as a result, Van sustained catastrophic uh, injuries, including a traumatic brain injury, a fractured clavicle, internal hemorrhage of his right eye, and damage to his throat and vocal cords. Uh, Van uh, files a, both a workers' compensation claim, uh, which the city uh, does not uh, dispute in any fashion, but he also files a lawsuit against the city, alleging that the city had long been on notice of the illegal conduct of the bus driver who worked for the San Francisco Metropolitan Transit Authority and had done nothing. In other words, uh, the claim says that the city was negligent for retaining the bus driver who himself was negligent. Uh, Van, while he's up, also sues the bus driver, contending that the bus driver's obvious negligence is what resulted in Van's injury. The city opposes the lawsuit, pointing to the Workers' Compensation Act in California and saying uh, that the workers' comp system provides the exclusive remedy for Van's claim against both the city and the co-employee, the driver. And the California Court of Appeals agrees with the city. And the court says that under the Workers' Compensation Act, quote, an employer's liability to pay compensation under the Workers' Compensation Act is in lieu of any other liability whatsoever. Um, Van's got some arguments. He says, you know, if you look at the statutes and the ordinances and the charter provisions that govern these three entities, the city, the transit authority, and the fire department, you'll see they're actually three separate legal entities. And the court uh, rejects that argument. Uh, the court describes Van's position as, quote, presupposing that for purposes of a lawsuit for damages, a municipal department can and does possess a legal identity separate and apart from the municipality by which it was created. However, the Transit Authority and the Fire Department remain part of a single governmental entity, the city. 
if the transit authority and the fire department have no legal existence separate from the city, then they are merely two subsidiary components of the same entity, the city. And the court says the conclusion that follows from this sort of analysis is that the city employs both van and the bus driver, and thus the bus driver is a co-employee, and thus van can't sue the bus driver because of the workers' compensation bar. Now, I'll tell you, uh, at the time, this grand compromise I've described uh, came into play in the early 1900s in most places across the country. At the time, uh, workers' compensation systems were thought to be an incredible benefit for employees uh, because employees who had been injured on the job before often were simply discarded by their employers without the payment of any medical expenses or uh, any payments for loss of function of various body, bodily parts and the like. Today, not so much. So look at Van's injury in this case. Injuries, traumatic brain injury, uh, a fractured left clavicle. Imagine the force required to do that. An internal hemorrhage in his right eye, permanent damage to his uh, throat and vocal cords. Uh, there's clear negligence here, right? A bus driver shouldn't be driving a bus over a fire hose at, a, uh, at the scene of an emergency. So imagine if this case was in court and you didn't have a workers' compensation bar and Van is suing the bus driver and, under the respondeat superior notion, the city, what's that case worth? Well, this is California we're talking about, San Francisco we're talking about. That case would be worth certainly in the seven digits, maybe, maybe very likely, in the eight digits. How much in the way of benefits is Van going to get through the workers' compensation system? Only a tiny, tiny fraction of what he could get if he went through court. So this is why some public safety unions are starting to think, like the folks in Washington did, maybe we ought to take a look at these workers' compensation bars for public safety employees. Maybe that should become part of our legislative priorities. But until the statutes change, you're going to have cases like Vans get decided and they're going to be easy cases for the judges to decide on the law. The judges hate these cases because they're very sympathetic to public safety employees, but the law is so crystal clear that they have no choice but to rule the way the California Court of Appeals did in this case and reject the employee's lawsuit. This next case, which is out of Texas, I bring up only because we're not getting married as often as we used to. Uh, it, there's all sorts of evidence, all sorts of analysis that's out there in the last five to ten years pointing to the fact that uh, people in 
younger age brackets in their 20s and 30s are getting married at a much lower rate of frequency than has been the case at any time in our history as a country. I mean, this is a significant trend. And uh, there are some implications in terms of uh, employee benefits uh, and pension systems in particular to the fact that people may be in permanent relationships but not be married. So let me give you this case, uh, describe the facts in it, and, uh, and suggest to you um, some possible alternatives for consideration in terms of legislative language. So this case involves a couple, Marta Danlick and David Hopper, uh, and they meet in New York in 2011. Hopper may be pronounced Hofer, I'm not sure. Uh, my apologies. Uh, they, they begin dating in 2012, the year after they meet, and at the time, uh, Hoffer is a police officer with the city of New York. Danlick and Hoffer began living together in New York in uh, November 2013, uh, and they moved to Texas together in January 2014. Why do they move? Because Hoffer begins work uh, as a police officer with the Euless uh, Texas Police Department. Initially, the couple lived in an apartment while they searched for a house. And on September 14, 2014, so we're now two years, two and a half years after they start dating, Hoffer takes Danlick on a prearranged ride-along in his patrol car and surprises her with a proposal and an engagement ring and a wedding band with family and other officers witnessing the event. Uh, in November of 2015, another year later, uh, they purchase a home together. Tragically, Hoffer is killed in the line of duty in 2016, and he's survived by his mother, uh, his father, maybe think of those two as the good guys, two siblings, um, maybe good guys, and Danlick. After Hoffer's death, Danlick, supported by Hoffer's parents, uh, begins what's called an airship determination, in airship, as in H-E-I-R-S-H-I-P, in state probate court, saying, uh, look, I'm entitled to Hoffer's estate. And the court sides with Danlick and says, yes, you are indeed the sole heir to Hoffer's estate. Danlick then sought death benefits from ULIS. Uh, ULIS is subject to the workers' comp system in Texas and is self-insured. And the city of ULIS ends up filing a challenge to Danlick's status as Hoffer's widow. Uh, the way the Texas system goes, and uh, Texas does things a little bit differently in terms of how they litigate cases, this case gets tried to a jury, which returns a unanimous verdict against the city. Uh, the jury is saying, in fact, even though they never got married, uh, Danlick has the necessary status as Hoffer's win a widow and city process the workers' comp claim. The city 
persists, though, and challenges the jury's decision in the Texas Court of Appeals. And the basic argument is that the evidence was insufficient to establish that Danlick and Hoffer uh, agreed to be married. Uh, so how, how does all this work under Texas law? Here's what uh, the Court of Appeals ends up saying. Quote, to establish an agreement to be married, the evidence must show the parties intended to have a present, immediate, and permanent marital relationship, and they did, in fact, agree to be husband and wife. This is what we used to call common law marriages, right? Or at least a version of it. Here, it's actually under a Texas statute, but this, uh, this really is the equivalent of a common law marriage. Back to the court. Here, Danlick testified that she and Hoffer agreed to be married. This agreement didn't come about through a single conversation, but occurred over multiple conversations. Uh, she testified that the couple moved to Texas because they were committed, uh, saying it's us and nobody else for us for the rest of our lives. And she testified this was going to be forever until death do us part. The court points to the fact that Danlick gave a wedding ring and an engagement ring um, and uh, points to Danlick's testimony that they had agreed to be married uh, on the date of the formal proposal. Uh, they actually considered that date to be their anniversary. And the parents chime in. As I said, the parents are the good guys here. They maybe could have filed a challenge, but they didn't. Uh, they declared under oath that Hoffer was married to Danlick when Hoffer died. And the court rejects the city's argument that there's no evidence the two agreed to be married. Uh, the court said all this testimony, that's direct evidence that they agreed to be married. Uh, and beyond that, there's lots of other evidence here. There's cohabitation. They lived together. They were buying a house together. Uh, there were the representations that they made to others. There's evidence that Danlick told others that she and Hoffer lived together and did all the things married people do, and friends called them husband and wife. So the court ends up saying these two, for purposes of the pension laws, are to be treated as married. And that means that Danlick should be entitled to survivor's benefits uh, under the workers' compensation system. Okay, I didn't uh, want to talk about this case just because of uh, kind of the unusual facts that you see here. Uh, but back to the basic principle I started with, uh, younger women and men are getting married with less frequency. That means that employers and unions should be focused on their pension laws to see if they adequately accomplish the purposes they're looking for. What would happen in your state if this situation involving Hoffer and Danlick occurred? Would Danlick have any rights to survivor benefits under a workers' compensation system? If you don't immediately know the answer to that question, you need to find out and make sure 
that whatever the answer is comports with what your expectation is of what should occur. And if not, maybe, once again, you should be adding this sort of topic to your legislative priorities. Well, that's it for the inaugural episode in 2024 of First Thursday. Hope to see you in Las Vegas at the end of the month. Starting on January 31st, we're going to have our three-day seminar on union leadership. Uh, we are going to prove to you in that seminar that discussions of things like the union's constitution and bylaws and finances can not only be uh, necessary, but also interesting and fun. I promise you. Hope to see you there. And with that, this is Will Aitchison signing off.